recently did a webinar for a group from India covering seven super effective lesson tips for coaches. I've downloaded the entire audio of that talk here for you to listen to. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so um, this talk is sort of in, in reference to, you know, problems a lot of us have um, or issues a lot of us have on court in our academies around the, around the world. Um, and I've been to India a lot, so you know, I've been able to see a lot of places, training facilities. So I've put together uh, what I feel are seven uh, really effective lesson tips for coaches. And some of them are a little bit outside the box, so I hope you find them interesting. Um, because I think you know, all of us at some point, we get a little bit stale and with what we're doing and we, you know, we're heading to the court each day and it's hard to keep things fresh. I hope these seven tips will address that, that issue. Um, just a little bit about myself. Um, most of you will know me, but just to reiterate, I spent a bit of time in India at the Britannia Armitage Tennis Scheme. Um, now, why I bring that up is because um, probably had one of the best educations that a coach could get under Maggie Armitage, Vijay Anand and Ashok's mother. And the thing that sort of made Maggie an amazing person to be around was because at times she was completely unreasonable, very demanding, nothing was ever good enough. And I guess, you know, that reflects in her sons who have all gone on to achieve really, you know, very interesting things and done very well on the world stage. So, you know, I, I'm, I have no doubt it came from Maggie's influence. And I had the chance for two years to be, um, you know, around her and for her to be, Basically, she was the manager of the program that I had, the, the Britannia Armitage Tennis Scheme. So, you know, there were, there were a lot of stories I can relate to. Basically, nothing was ever good enough. If a boy, um, if I traveled with a team to Delhi or wherever, Chandigarh or wherever, um, if a boy won the first set 6-4 and won the second set 7-5, she would bring that up when we got home. What happened to him? Why did he, why did he, you know, suddenly his form dropped? And it didn't really matter what you said. You know, I, I would say often, you know, the other boy, you know, picked up his game, was better, but we held him out, da, 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 da. No, that was never good enough. So a lot of the time spent in the BAT program in Madras, back then it was Madras, of course, was me sitting at the kitchen table trying to work out how to create winners, um, you know, and, and what probably a lot of people don't realize is that the Britannia Armitage uh, boys that, that joined us were not always the best in the country. And, and in fact, most of the time, um, most of the time they were not even making, you know, first round of the main draw. But we, we had this, philosophy where we pick boys based on their potential and based on their character. And we believe that we had enough time, and we did, uh, enough time over the 
uh, ensuing months and, and what have you to groom them and develop them. But if we had the right character, that was you know, very possible. If we had a poor character, and, but someone who was uh, winning everything, we normally didn't pick them. So that's a little bit of my background in terms of where I got to today, because after the, or prior to Britannia Armitage and then after, I was involved with um, competition players, players who had to win. And so it made me really search for methods and ways to um, understand players and to get them to that next level. So that's just a little bit of where some of this will come from. Now, in terms of academies, let's, let's sort of get into the nitty gritty and be blunt here. Um, we, can everybody see that uh, screen well enough? Okay, all right. So in terms of academies, let's, let's just put them into three categories. Let's start at the top. So you have these academies in, in your country, whether it's um, yeah, India, anywhere, Singapore, doesn't matter, that are amazing. And normally the ingredients that, that makes them amazing is that they're very stimulating environments to be part of. And because of that, a lot of the best players in the country gravitate to there. Um, the, the other factor that I, I feel is that the focus of the academies that succeed, and this may sound a little strange, are the parents and the players. But, you know, and you would have thought maybe players for sure, but I'm including parents there. And I'm including parents because some of you are parents already, and you'll know that when you take your child to you know, dance classes, art classes, music classes, you, you, you are very involved in the process. You're keen for them to develop as people, um, to develop skills and all that. And so when you take your child to these places, you're quite keen to, to watch and to participate in not participate on the court, but participate in the learning process, the development of your child. What happens a lot at the best academies is that they involve the parents, involve them and respect them and keep them in the loop. And let's face it, you're not getting the check from the child. You're getting the, the check, the payment from the adult, from the parent. And those parents very often also decide on whether they stay with you or leave based on what they see from the sidelines and what they you know, observe as the character of the place. And very often the best academies, best training facilities around, they focus a lot on the parents and the players. And if you get that right, you have a winning mixture. So let's, flip down to the second tier on a par with other places. And, you know, these, and you can imagine in your country again, these places, they do a, a pretty good job technically. And often they are controlled by ex-players who, who were good 
even maybe had a name for themselves locally in tournaments um, and are characterized by high energy on the court and a lot of hitting and obviously with with some of the coaches um, at these places they can play well so you're getting good sparring often <coughs> excuse me so these i would call on a par with others because i think this is sort of the norm in most countries and then just to compare we've got the they suck category and they tend to do everything the opposite of what the other two are doing and here's um, the example so the focus is on the coaches not the players and certainly not on the parents so it's about the coaches all the time um, it they tend to be builds up little confidence in the lesson because there's no continuity or no structure it's very ad hoc type of daily lesson plans and again we're going to address that now with with some um, slides coming up um, despite obvious issues and problems nothing is ever done to address them so uh, and further down I'm, I'm saying um, players tend to come and go a lot at these places they come in and they go out but without addressing the problems that they left for it continues in that way so even if they were able to attract a new person uh, well let me start let me just go back a little bit here if someone leaves an academy there's two things happen they must be unless you're going to completely run out of players they must be replaced that's hard work but the double whammy is that everybody who leaves because of an issue at the training or the facility or the coaches tells 10 people or more and so when people walk away from your facility or your academy that's quite a big issue because it's going to affect your business long term and eventually you may get to the point where you your academy simply dries up all right let's move on sorry oh, 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 oh. A bit fast Okay, so I guess, you know, what we have to do is we have to ask ourselves the question, uh, are, are we satisfied with the lessons? Are you satisfied with the lessons? Or is there room for improvement? And I think the honest answer for all of us, yeah, me included, everybody, is that, yes, you know, there's room for improvement, for sure. And again, in these seven slides, I'm going to try and give you seven ways to improve the lesson. So the bottom line is that you, know, you have the students on the left and you have this big heart on the right. If your players, your students are having a good time and enjoying what you're doing in your academy, they will stay and attract more. The word will spread. This is the simple formula. If there was only one slide to put up today, this would be the one. Because this means retaining and uh, attracting and retaining um, students. Attracting because these two tell others. And retaining because they won't go anywhere else if they're, if they're liking what they're getting. 
this could have been the only slide of the day. Okay, so the issue that we're trying to address ultimately is that it's about attracting and retaining players. And obviously, if this equation works, we're making good money and it's a good business. Okay, so let's look at now, we'll take it down to more of a day-by-day -day thing. What does a lesson, daily lesson plan consist of? Let's just go through now some of the ingredients that we need. Oops. I want to quickly just mention before we start, because on the question, what does a daily lesson plan involve? I want you to understand that 95% of the players are not there to learn. Even, even at a higher level, you know, I, I can, you know, I've worked with players sometimes, you know, national champions or whatever. Ultimately, they're still there to enjoy what they're doing and have a bit of fun. Learning is never at the top of the list. So if you're watching students come through the gate in the evenings or the mornings or whenever your session is, look at them in a totally different light. They're not coming to learn. Your first step is to make it other things first. And then you fit the learning in somewhere in there uh, in between, a bit like a sandwich. So to me, here are four really important ingredients needed to, to attract and retain students. First one, have fun. And, and you notice here, nowhere does it say learn. So the first one, uh, make it fun, make it rewarding, make it challenging, and display empathy for them. That's more from the coach's side, but that will obviously generate um, um, a retention of students. So in the seven tips I have coming up, each of them addresses a part of, or, or two or three of these points. That's why they're so important. So <clears throat> we'll start now. If you want to take a few notes, that's fine. But at the end of this um, webinar, I'm going to be posting the link, the recording. Okay, the first tip is always include points in the lesson. Now here's a, bit of, here's a little bit of the detail. Why lots of points? You see on the, on the right-hand side using points, test, test, test. One of the things I've learned over the years is that if you're teaching something, um, you, I, I need feedback pretty quick. So let's imagine, you know, we're working on first serve. I will teach it in a, in, a, um, in a traditional way, maybe with a basket or whatever it is, but I very, very quickly, and a lot of you who have been to camps and clinics with me will, will have witnessed this, I very quickly switch it into points. And it's because I want to see what's happened since the instruction. And I, I, I'm not even waiting, basically, to make sure they get it. I just want to see, do they get it? 
because there are a lot of players out there that learn something. Um, if they're put into points, it's not so good for a while, but then they get it. They just need a bit of time. And a lot of you, all of you have been players. You know the frustration when you get taught something and can't damn well try it out. And I call that, you know, the coach hacking you in cotton wool. They're afraid to put you into the test. I like to put players immediately into points and test them. And that's why, again, at camps and clinics, you hear me putting players into seven-point tie breaks, five-point tie breaks, even three-point tie breaks, just to see what's happening. And from that, I learn where to go next. So another factor, apart from the test, test, test factor, another factor that points um, help you with is that you have the option of training a player for a certain amount of time before they go to the tournament. Now, I like to look at this as an analogy of imagine the player standing on a cliff face with a 100-foot drop below. They fall, they die. And 50 meters further across on the horizon is another cliff. That other cliff is called tournament time. The cliff they're standing on now is called practice time. We're, we're training players on this cliff. And when the tournament comes around saying, now make a leap for the other side, you should be fine. But no, they're not. They never will be. So from practice to matches means we have to create the bridge from where they are in practice to the match court. And the quickest way to do that is to integrate points immediately into practice all the time. So if you have one topic for the day or two, have points going on around them and observe. Because that will give the player the opportunity to start building their own bridge. So by the time tournaments arrive, they have played hundreds of points. It's not, it's not that, oh my gosh, this is a new environment. And they either get stressed, uh, you know, lose confidence, all these factors, mental factors. Um, and so the third point under using points is stop protecting players by wrapping them in cotton wool. It does them and you no good. No, 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 it doesn't help. And it doesn't help for the factor I've just mentioned. At some point, the stress, decision-making, and uh, need for confidence in, in yourself on the court, that, that will come, that time. Why would you leave it you know, for, for a long, long time to introduce it? And just very quickly, probably for me and my experience, the number one issue that people bring up is that it can't translate their practice court form to the match court. And this is the reason there is no bridge built during practice. Practice and matches are two different worlds that never meet. And only the privileged 3% can make that or, or bridge that gap themselves. The rest of us really, really struggle and sometimes never get it. And then you begin to see um, issues with anger, 
confidence, uh, yeah, all these mental issues you see on the court, they're all varied, but they all come from a lack of bridge and a player being stranded in matches with, without the tools to cope. Okay, the fourth part is that, and you can see on the photo, uh, myself and that's um, Christopher Marcus, he has um, or had an academy in New Jersey, and I used to go there sometimes. You can see what's going on here. It's very obvious that you know, the players are in points and him and I are you know, at the sideline. And I know the conversations were always about, watch this, what's, what are they doing now? How are they coping with that? Did you see that? You know, this is the time to critique the lesson you've just done. And you know, again, with, with the coaches that have been sort of with me on court, we're doing that all the time. Watch him, let's try this out, let's do this. So um, play lots of points, test, test, test. That's point one. Point two, keep the rhythm of the lesson consistent. Now, every, every lesson has a rhythm to it. And the players are the number one judges of it because they are, they are your audience and they're picking up on everything subtly. Uh, I know in India, a lot of them won't actually come to you and, and explain, sir, this, you know, this, that, they'll just keep quiet. But they're feeling everything. And rhythm is a very important part of the lesson. Now, obviously, when, when there's a rhythm in, a, in a, a lesson, let's say you're on court for two hours in the evening, there are certain ebbs and flows, but your job is to keep them to a minimum. And so if that momentum ebbs and flows, you're signaling different things to the student and all of them affect their motivation. So the first one signals uh, to the player you're not interested. If you start with a hiss and a roar in the beginning, highly organized, and then um, it suddenly you get distracted by you know, talking with somebody or whatever, 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 and I'm guilty of that as well. It's very hard not to sometimes. Um, the players feel it. If you're on court one, working with two or three there, court three at the other side of the facility, or court six, as is the case in some places, they haven't seen you for sometimes 20 to 25 minutes. And again, if you've watched me at camps and clinics, you would have noticed that I, I try to walk continuously around and around and around because that's sort of the closest I can get to keeping each court on the same rhythm, wavelength, um, knitted together. I'm trying not to lose um, any student. Often I might see a player, I'll be standing on court one, see a player on court three, and I will call out an instruction or a you know, great shot or whatever, whatever. That's another way to keep everybody linked together in terms of their motivation and their interest. Sorry, I, I can see a spelling mistake there, but I'll try and fix that later. Um, it's a sign there's no lesson plan, which means, you know, if you start with a hiss and a roar 
and then it slowly sort of uh, ebbs away as, as the lesson continues, it's probably a short sign to the players that there's no structure to this day. There's no plan for it. Because what plans can do, and I, I generally have, you know, lesson plans, weekly plans, monthly plans, they're not that complicated to do, but I generally have plans for all these things. Um, it makes the end of my lesson seem as engaged as the beginning. You know, in fact, often it's a case of I'm going to run out of time here, which is fine. There's no problem with that. But the players, if the lesson ebbs um, near the end, they, they sense that. And that's a sure sign there was no real plan. And then the overall effect, as I've already mentioned, is that it affects the motivation of the student. Put yourself in their shoes. You're on a court, you're not seeing the coach that often, and you know his, his attention is distracted often. So it really, really affects your motivation, no matter how good a kid you are and how motivated you started, it tends to eat away at your motivation. Okay, number three. Tip number three, have macro and micro lessons going on. Now, this is, um, again, a little bit to do with the, the ebb and flow of matches and the consistency of the rhythm. So I'll explain really quickly. Um, there is, when you, when you do a lesson, there's a big picture and a small picture. The big picture involves um, your monthly plan. Let's say serve and volley. You've decided that for this month, you're going to work on serve and volley. You've been to tournaments. You see that that might be a good addition to your players or your players. You have an overall plan that obviously you'll probably work on direction of the serve, how the serve should set the player up at net. Um, you might um, yeah, have, have issues like that. You'll probably work a lot on volleys if the volleys need touching up and all that. And hopefully by now, after um, tip number one, you'll be playing a lot of points within this month. There's also the daily lesson. The daily one might be today we're going to work mostly on volleys, which means that the the macro picture, macro plan is this month is serve and volley. The macro picture for the day is we will teach, uh, we'll, we'll study the, the volley. It might be the grip, the underspin, the whatever. That's, those are both macro picture, big picture things. Now, the, the micro one is equally as important and needs to go on at the same time because the macro um, picture is when you, you, know, you have three or four players or six players or 12 players on courts. Each player is not going to understand each thing equally. So you might have three of them um, having trouble with grip. You might have two of them having trouble with uh, movement at net. Um, one may have trouble locking their wrist, da-da-da-da-da. Uh, you have these micro lessons that need to be continually remembered. And I think, you know, you guys, you've, you're experienced enough, you know 
each player has their little issues. Now that needs to be going on at the same time as the big picture we're doing you know, volleys today. So you can involve, because groups you can't do you know, multiple private lessons by, them, by themselves, you can do the macro picture and then do the micro within that macro picture. Um, Servant volley to, uh, this month, uh, volleys today, but you know, uh, Sam needs work locking his wrist more. All right, so that's the, um, the macro and micro uh, ongoing lessons during, during the session. Tip number four, include both fun and fitness elements. It's what they come for. So this is, you know, we mentioned this earlier, they're not there to learn. But obviously, if you can get it right, they're learning a lot. But it's got to be done within a fun fitness type way. And I mix the two together there because you can do a fun game separate or you can mix fitness in with fun game, which means yeah, you might have shuttle runs or whatever in teams. Uh, just to have a bit of laughs and you know peer pressure stuff going on. So um, you know what what is the purpose of them? Well, again, everybody wants to enjoy tennis, but it keeps to point two. It keeps people motivated, and I have no problem with sometimes creating a fitness um, element in the middle of the technique. So let's imagine you know today is net play. You might want to do um, a center line, side to side type of race with everyone lined up together. Lined up together means fun because they're all they're all racing against each other. Um, the side to side element is the fitness, the quickness, the foot speed, and we happen to be working on volleys as soon as we finish again, or we've already been working on volleys and we come to foot speed in the fun game, and then we go back to volleys again. So everything makes a bit of sense and there's continuity. It creates an amazing atmosphere if you can keep slipping these fun things in. And then the other thing is that I feel is that there's a lot of parents that come to watch and you're, you're portraying a very, uh, a very good atmosphere on court. Um, often uh, I have left the fun game until the end of the lesson, in which case um, we've all finished with a laugh and that, and they all, they all file off the court and uh, hop in their cars with their parents and they're on their way home. I can imagine that the, the excitement and the motivation is extremely high when they get in the car. And so therefore, you know, the, the talk in the car will be very positive about your lesson and very positive about, you know, each session you're doing and how much fun it is and da da da. So again, involving the parents, giving them the good vibes uh, on the ride home. And the other thing probably at the end of all this, if a player feels that you have empathy for them and that you are providing fun games and uh, you know a bit of fitness in there that's fun, but it doesn't last forever and it's not gonna kill them. They put 100% into the fun game and the fitness. And then when they come out of it and they start working on, let's say points or um, a drill or whatever, 
they have more motivation for it. You've given them a bit of a break, a bit of fresh air, a bit of laughter, and then bang, back into a drill. Number five is provide both task and ego elements for players. Now, I'll just explain real quick. Some of you might already understand these terms, but very quickly, a task-motivated player, or the players that we have each night or each evening, are um, either into, have two type of uh, motivations. Some are motivated by task and some are motivated by ego. The task-motivated player is the type of player who will hit 500 forehands cross-court and they will do it all day if you ask them. They love that stuff. They, 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 um, they tend to thrive on hard work and repetition. And they have this thing in their head which tells them, if I work really hard today, good things will happen in the future. Now, the problem, uh, sorry, the ego-motivated player is the type of player who we all have and they, they're a little bit hard to get along with because they tend to be a bit selfish and a bit um, difficult on the court. They don't mix very well with the others because they're there to win. And they don't enjoy repetition. They don't enjoy drilling because to them that's boring. and It's not tennis. But the thing is with the ego-motivated player, during the weekend when the tournament comes around, they normally win. And very often in your group, the ego-motivated player is the number one player or close to it. So my understanding of how to treat these two motivations um, is that you need, you need the task guy to be, gain more ego. And the reason is because I've seen many task-motivated players uh, do well in a tournament up to the semi-final get deep into the third set at five all. And then I'm sure a little voice goes off inside their head saying, wow, I've done, I've done well this week. This is the sign I'm improving. Uh, I've done well, this is the top seed, I'm into the third set, nobody expected this. And in their head they say, this is quite good. Within three, four months, I'll be even better. I'll be doing even better than this. That mindset tends to cause the task-motivated player to lose the close matches. Now, the ego-motivated player thinks completely different at 5-all in the third set. They basically say to themselves, I am not losing this match. I will not lose this. I don't lose this situations. So they tend to pull through, especially if they're playing a task-motivated player at the time. Their ego tends to pull them through and get the result. Now, obviously, if the task guy continues to play and, and lose heartbreakers to, you know, after working so hard, they can lose motivation because you know, they're not getting the results they expect to come. The ego guy, because they're not training that hard, can actually fall back behind the group because they're not improving, not getting stronger, their serve problem is not improving, 
the, basically the game as a 12 year old has not developed much apart from getting stronger and the others begin to pass them and the ego motivated player can't stand that. They can't handle that at all. And very often the ego motivated player who was a champion in the country at 10s and 12s gives up at 16 or 17 because their development wasn't taking place. So very important to provide um, a balance for both. The task guy needs ego and the ego guy needs more task. So excuse the picture on the left, it's the only one I had. Um, one size doesn't fit all. Just because you're a coach that, you know, likes those tasks, and I, I was the same, likes those task motivated players because they listen really well, they work hard, they don't, they're not disruptive, they're normally good team players within the group. Um, I, I used to like those students, but I tell you something, if someone, if I had to pick someone to play for my life in a match today, I would pick the ego motivated guy because they will pull through. So you, you need elements of both ego and task in equal, or not equal, it doesn't have to be equal, but it has to be high doses. The goal of, um, of each session should be lots of hard work um, mixed in for the ego guy, but you may want to mix in an ego element. I'll give you an example. If you want to get the fitness cardio of an ego motivated guy up, then you may do a month of shuttle runs where every session, every two hour session, you mix in four or five shuttle runs in a team environment. So the ego guy is trying to win and that will lure them into effort um, in the fitness. With the ego motivated, uh, sorry, task motivated player, you will be playing a lot of points. And at that time, you're calling out come on, win this. And you've heard me on the court, some of you um, say this to players, I want you to win this tie break. I want you to win this point. I want you to beat this guy. And that's an effort to balance the two um, ego motivations so that you're basically orchestrating both the task and the ego and helping their deficit. Again, this would be a, a classified under the um, micro lesson, part of the lesson, not the macro. Now, how much do you get involved? This is sort of a, an odd question. Um, very often, I, I, I developed the technique. We used to, I was captain for Thailand and David's Cup. And whenever we traveled overseas, or even locally, actually, to be truthful, the first day's practice, I would set everything up. And normally, you know, we'd only need one court, four players, one court. And I would go and stand about two or three courts away. Oh, way, way, way. And probably sit in era, an umpire chair, and just observe. And this, is, uh, this was an effort to allow them to adjust to the sometimes new environment. 
to this would be the first this would be sort of a Thursday a Wednesday or a Thursday before matches started Friday but this would be an effort to calm their nerves not come at them too hard too soon and just stand back and the further back I stood the more I got or the less I got involved which was what I was trying to do because sometimes I tend to see something and jump in and that's not always the best and jumping in is also uh, addressing this question how involved do you get so uh, whether to be involved or not step in or step back so whenever you're doing a micro lesson like the the lock of the wrist on a volley that's and you're going in close to the player that's a micro lesson micro lessons tend to be um, heavily involved uh, in your face in a nice way um, let type lessons type instructions and you could be coming in and out of those second option is the far away where i think often i have called out instructions on court one to court four or three or whatever and knowing full well that everybody on every court can hear me so if i want to perhaps um, uh, discipline the focus of the of the whole uh, area the group the, the courts i may call out to someone two courts away and that is heard by everybody on every court so if i say you know yeah come on harry yeah i want you to focus i want more effort i want da 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 da, da. everybody hears that so oh, oh my gosh coach is motivated coach is focused you know and he's watching he's even watching two courts away so that will sort of stimulate a bit of discipline the macro sorry the, the from afar type macro coaching um it also allows at times and i think of what the davis cup analogy was probably um this it allows the players to self-teach themselves or self-adjust and we mentioned earlier where when you're taught something sometimes all you want is a little bit of time and so by jumping in at every mistake or in every instance can sometimes and the players most of the players we have are very polite young people and they will stop and they will listen but you have distracted them in a sense no matter how good the advice is you have uh, taken their focus away and so very often allow one mistake two mistakes allow it to keep going craig o'shaughnessy uh, who was a very good statistician on tennis has the same um error 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 uh, and i think winner or something like that is uh, i might be getting it wrong but basically what he's saying is allow mistakes um because and i know you guys were good players as well we just sometimes needed a little bit of time and a little bit of hitting and then we got it um, allow your student the same courtesy um, don't feel the need to jump in uh, get in their face and start teaching on every mistake um, so basically what we're talking about is the ability to create intense situations and calm situations whether you're in their face or standing back depends on what the intensity or, or the intensity you want to create.
I mean, even better than this. That mindset tends to cause the task-motivated player to lose the close matches. Now, the ego-motivated player thinks completely different at 5 all in the third set. They basically say to themselves, I am not losing this match. I will not lose this. I don't lose this situations. So they tend to pull through, especially if they're playing a task-motivated player at the time. Their ego tends to pull them through and get the result. Now, obviously, if the task guy continues to play and, and lose heartbreakers to, you know, after working so hard, they can lose motivation because you know, they're not getting the results they expect to come. The ego guy, because they're not training that hard, can actually fall back behind the group because they're not improving, not getting stronger, their serve problem is not improving. The, basically, their game as a 12-year-old has not developed much apart from getting stronger. And the others begin to pass them and the ego-motivated player can't stand that. They can't handle that at all. And very often, the ego-motivated player who was a champion in the country at 10s and 12s gives up at 16 or 17 because their development wasn't taking place. So very important to provide um, a balance for both. The task guy needs ego and the ego guy needs more task. So excuse the picture on the left, it's the only one I had. Um, one size doesn't fit all. Just because you're a coach that, you know, likes those tasks, and I, I was the same, likes those task-motivated players because they listen really well, they work hard, they don't, they're not disruptive, they're normally good team players within the group. Um, I, I used to like those students. But I tell you something, if someone, if I had to pick someone play for my life in a match today, I would pick the ego-motivated guy because they will pull through. So you, you need elements of both ego and task in equal, or not equal, it doesn't have to be equal, but it has to be high doses. The goal of, um, of each session should be lots of hard work um, mixed in for the ego guy, but you may want to mix in an ego element. I'll give you an example. If you want to get the fitness cardio of an ego motivated guy up, then you may do a month of shuttle runs where every session, every two hour session, you mix in four or five shuttle runs in a team environment. So the ego guy is trying to win and that will lure them into effort um, in the fitness. With the ego motivated, uh, sorry, task motivated player, you will be playing a lot of points. And at that time, you're calling out, come on, win this. And you've heard me on the court, some of you um, say this to players I want you to win this tie break. I want you to win this point. I want you to beat this guy. And that's an effort to balance the two um, ego motivations so that you're basically orchestrating both the task and the ego and helping 
their deficit. Again, this would be a, a classified under the um, micro lesson, part of the lesson, not the macro. Now, how much do you get involved? This is sort of a, an odd question. Um, very often, I, I, I developed the technique. We used to, I was captain for Thailand and David's Cup. And whenever we traveled overseas, or even locally, actually, to be truthful, the first day's practice, I would set everything up and normally uh, we'd only need one court, four players, one court. And I would go and stand about two or three courts away. Oh, way, way, way. And probably sit an era, an umpire chair, and just observe. And this, is, uh, this was an effort to allow them to adjust to the sometimes new environment. To, this would be the first, this would be sort of a, Thursday, uh, a Wednesday or a Thursday before matches started Friday. But this would be an effort to calm their nerves, not come at them too hard too soon, and just stand back. And the further back I stood, the more I got, or the less I got involved, which was what I was trying to do, because sometimes I tend to see something and jump in, and that's not always the best. And jumping in is also uh, addressing this question, how involved do you get? So uh, whether to be involved or not, step in or step back. So whenever you're doing a micro lesson, like the, the lock of the wrist on a volley, that's, and you're going in close to the player, that's a micro lesson. Micro lessons tend to be um, heavily involved uh, in your face in a nice way, um, type lessons, type instructions. And you could be, coming in and out of those. The second option is the far away, where I think often I have called out instructions on court one to court four or three or whatever. And knowing full well that everybody on every court can hear me. So if I want to perhaps um, uh, discipline the focus of the, of the whole uh, area, the group, the, the courts, I may call out to someone two courts away, and that is heard by everybody on every court. So if I say, you know, yeah, come on, Harry, yeah, I want you to focus. I want more effort. I want da 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 da. Everybody hears that and say, oh, oh my gosh, coach is motivated, coach is focused, you know, and he's watching. He's even watching two courts away. So that will sort of stimulate a bit of discipline, the macro, sorry, the, the from afar type macro coaching. Um, it also allows at times, and I think uh, what the Davis Cup analogy was probably um, this, it allows the players to self-teach themselves or self-adjust. And we mentioned earlier where when you're taught something, sometimes all you want is a little bit of time. And so by jumping in at every mistake or in every instance, can sometimes, and the players, most of the players we have are very polite young people, and they will stop and they will listen, but you've distracted them in a sense. No matter how good the advice is, you've uh, taken their focus away. And so very often, allow one mistake, two mistakes, allow it to keep going. Craig O'Shaughnessy, uh, who was a very good statistician on tennis, has the same um, error, 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 uh, and I think 
winner or something like that. It's, I might be getting it wrong. But basically what he's saying is allow mistakes. Um, because, and I know you guys were good players as well. We just sometimes needed a little bit of time and a little bit of hitting. And then we got it. Um, allow your student the same courtesy. Um, don't feel the need to jump in, uh, get in their face and start teaching on every mistake. Um, so basically what we're talking about is the ability to create intense situations and calm situations. Whether you're in their face or standing back depends on what the intensity or the intensity you want to create. The last point, ask for and expect more from your players. Now, this might seem like an obvious one, but I, I'll give you a, a small example. What I'm trying to address here is perhaps the lower level of your class um, and the higher level. Because if you take care of the higher, of the best player on the court, and maybe let's call, say, for want of a different term, the worst player on the court, you're going to address everyone in between. So you need to provide challenges for every um, group. And very often, and again, you will see me in camps and clinics, mixing everybody together, levels together, sometimes playing a lower level player against a very good player. I do that because I'm challenging both in a certain sense. Now, there's different ways you can uh, challenge. One is time. There could be a time issue where you're doing a drill and so many targets have to be hit in a certain time. I'll give you five minutes um, and yeah, balls have to drop into this target from a feed uh, this many times. And that, that also can translate into a fun game very easily. Targets, and I just probably just mentioned targets, but you know, give players um, areas to hit to, cones to to target the ball to, um, air targets, the target above the net, I call the air target, what height you want them to, to cross the net. Um, peer pressure, I mentioned they're you know, playing, mixing it up so you're not always got, you know, court one uh, elite, court two intermediate, and uh, uh, the number one court uh, as the beginner or lower level players. Try to mix that up. If you're doing drills, mix the players at that time. Because um, if, and imagine when you were younger, being having, allowed to hit with a, a much better player you looked up to, or being in drills, side to side drills or whatever, mixed in with some of the best players. Um, it gave you a real thrill. It also teaches the better players a bit of community spirit, how to uh, support the players around them so they don't think they're high and mighty on the number one or the best court and uh, you know I don't talk to the little guys or the the, the the lousy players I don't talk to them I don't mix with them we, we need to get rid of all that it'll teach them a bit of you know social skills as well as give the um, lower level players a lot more motivation the other thing that we can create challenges with is fatigue so if you come up, if you integrate my idea of fitness, fitness games and fun games 
throughout the lessons scattered in amongst, then there will be a certain amount of fatigue. What better way to put a player's game under pressure than play, a, a, do a fitness drill of shuttle runs, and then immediately put them on a court and play points, you know, first to five. Um, to put, put their game under pressure in terms of fatigue, fitness. Okay. So if, if you guys would like um, to receive this video, um, you just email me here and just explain, and I'll send you a link back on your email address. Um, I will try and post a link in some places, but this will be the sure way I can attach it to an email real easy. Slightly longer podcast this week, but I hope you got lots out of it. When you're back on the court next time, I'm hoping that you can adopt some of those ideas on the lesson court. I'll be back next week. Looking forward to your company then. Until then, take care and see you in a week's time.